Honey, your water's boiling. That's going to be the beginning thing, by the way. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. All right. Are we ready to start? Is, every, is everybody recording? Jeez, yes. Matt, are you recording? Recording around. I'm also recording. Welcome to the Barely Saved Podcast, where we have the discussions real Christians don't have. Here's your hosts. I'm Rebecca. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Caleb. I'm Ron Burgundy. Okay, this is the first time I've like heard it this way, but Matt, it sounds like you say, welcome to the Barely Saved Podcast. <laughs> so like, barely isn't pronounced quite like bear and so it sounds like beerly like beard i mean we can we can play it again if you if you want to hear it matt have you heard it i guess i haven't heard it well okay so i definitely sit re- do it again welcome to the beerly save podcast where we have the discussions real christians don't have here's your hosts wow that's pretty bad i i gave caleb two options there i i, I recorded the intro twice i can go pull up the other options hold on i never noticed that yeah barely I mean, I like it. I just, I just, it was like, it was, it was just really clear this time that it was Beerly, which. Welcome to the Beerly Save podcast, where we have the discussions real Christians don't have. Here's your hosts. So that's one that you sent me. Welcome to the Beerly Save podcast, where we have the discussions real Christians don't have. Here's your hosts. Man, that is really funny. Is that a dialect thing? I, I think so. Yeah, is your Texan coming out? I don't think that's a Texan thing. Everything's a Texan thing. I think you've lived in Minnesota too long. No, it's definitely not Minnesotan. It's not a Texan thing, though. It doesn't sound Texan. It's it's just converting the A sound to an E sound. Yeah. That's a that's a northern thing. That's not a southern thing. I mean, they're really close in your mouth. I think I think I'm rolling into the R from the labial, the plosive. And so it's just barely instead of barely. It's just instead of I'm just moving forward a little bit. Yeah, I don't ever actually listen to it. Like, I listen to it the once when I stuck the music to it. And this is the most I've listened to it. <laughs> I listen to it on time and a half speed, or at least. So it just, it's barely. Right, exactly. So you. I've listened to it more times today than I have, like, consecutively since you sent me those files. Well, there you go. So that was fun. I agree. It's a northern thing, though. You've been in, up in Minnesota too long. It's not because it's not, it's not the south. Because we would make it a schwa. We would drop it to an uh. Right, like, or it'd be like going, ah, it wouldn't go to an E. The burly, burly saved. Yeah, that's weird. It'd be like barley. I don't think it's an A to E, though. I don't think that's a Minnesotan thing as much, like not moving forward. But it's but it's going up higher in your nose. It's more nasal, though, and that's a northern, like. Yeah. Like, think about, like, how do you say the word that you carry, like, groceries in? Oh, that's a bag? And screw all the bag people. See, but that's why I'm saying it's a north, like a. Uh, what? What is on top of your house? You realize that Rebecca pronounce it bag most of the time. That's a roof. That's a roof, not a roof. No, it's a roof. Uh, no, it's a roof. We will... Sh- it's a roof. Things will happen. It's also a root, not a root. A rut is different than a root. You know, it's funny because I'll do... I'll, I'll use both, actually. Yeah, no, it's a rut or a root. Okay, how do you say, can you do the Mary, Mary, Mary then, Caleb? Do you have that distinction? Like Mary's in the name of Mary's and Christmas and Mary is in the wedding. Those are all the same in my dialect. Are they different? Yeah, it's Mary, Mary, Mary. Mary, Mary, Mary. Yeah. I mean, like a marriage, like a marriage is different. Like I'm going to go marry somebody is different than Merry Christmas. Well, we know that, but th- but not how you pronounced it. 
Yeah, because it's like Mary, Mary, and Mary. It sounds different in my head when I'm saying them. Like I don't think I don't think it matters what it sounds like in your head. I think it matters what it sounds like to us in your dialect. I mean, maybe, but when I'm pronouncing them, I'm thinking different things. I understand that. I should be able to say them because I study linguistics, but I can never get them right. My speech doesn't always come out the way that I think it does anyways. Like, I'm used to that. It is an affliction that has plagued me my whole life. So I'm at least trying to put on the distinction. I appreciate us ganging up on Caleb over linguistic things. Oh, no, it's fine. It's fair. I deserve it most of the time. I feel like we don't gang up on Caleb very often, so... Not not enough. I deserve to be ganged up on more often than I am, so it's fine. See, whenever you mispronounce something, you just tell people, no, I'm a sociolinguist, and I'm all about, like, languages construct co-construction of meaning, and if you understood what I said, it doesn't matter. Well, I had that discussion this week, so this, if, you, if you're not aware... Uh, I'm going to jump into something here. I don't know. We'll cut this. Maybe who knows? Caleb, you're in charge. Um, the power of editing, but they, after the, the Amy Coney Barrett hearing, they changed the definition of preference in Merriam-Webster's dictionary. Okay. I saw posts about that on Facebook, but I didn't like watch the hearings. So I don't know the context. So they added the word offensive because apparently saying preference and in, in the idea of sexual orientation is offensive. Because it's not that you prefer something, that is how you are. Which, I think that's kind of a, personally, I think it's stupid. Like, I understand the offense, but I don't think that it should be offensive. That That is someone looking to be offended. So the linguist in me actually understands why they're differentiating that, but... Right, no, I, I yeah, so, but I prefer ice cream over frozen yogurt. I was also born that way. Like, that's not, <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't think... You could learn to like other kinds of like, I, you know, I initially learned like I liked, I didn't like peanut butter ice cream, right? But I could learn to like peanut butter ice cream. So could you learn, could you learn to change a sexual orientation? And maybe that's a big, that is a bigger question than we can get into. So, but okay. But there's also preference of, I prefer pleasure over pain. That's not offensive. Only when it comes to sexual preference in the dictionary, is it denoted as offensive? I'm right. I, I get that. I'm just saying, like, preference that shouldn't be offensive because we prefer things that are pleasurable. Some people don't. They have a whole category for that. But it's it's only, if it's only offensive regarding preference to sexual orientation or, like, sex with a male or sex with a female, like, then you're, you're, you're not, like, adding in preference of somebody who's taller than you or preference of looks or preference of like the things that people like visit. I mean, you can change your hair color, I guess. But we have sexual preferences in who we find attractive. Right. Exactly. Them putting it from the into the standpoint of orientation is does kind of just feel like we're going to be offended by, by it. Yeah. So I've seen a few people talk about it like, Hey, we should be concerned about this. They change the definition of a word, all this stuff. And I, I feel like that's really like troubling because it, denies what a dictionary is supposed to do like a dictionary is not supposed to tell us what a word means a dictionary is supposed to reflect how people use the word yep and so i think it's actually from that perspective of sociolinguistics i think putting it as offensive makes sense from a sociolinguistic perspective because it's dealing with the connotations behind it and so like if you're going to talk about it if you are someone who finds that offensive because you're like hey i didn't choose to be this way this is just how i am from a linguistics perspective that makes sense to put the word offensive there because it's dealing with all of the connotations behind it yeah and, and the thing is i don't think you have to abide by the dictionary definitions like that's a whole other thing maybe we often don't but 
Maybe I'm just too postmodern, but it's a suggestion. I just don't want, I, I think my main issue is just like we, ha, the the knee-jerk reaction is to like change the definition of the word to suit us versus, or to suit. But that's what a definition is. Yeah. And that's what they're doing. Cause it's like, if you're, cause if you're someone who doesn't think it's a preference, you're already not using that as a preference. So by calling it a sexual preference versus orientation, you're already differentiating. Okay. No, I'm not talking about this in particular. Like I'm not talking about this in particular. I'm just saying in general with the, the way that the word has been used by, by most people or a word like, and, and we've talked about this with, um, right. I've talked about, maybe we've talked about it in different things uh, in the, in the Facebook group, but like when they're, Basically, when they like updated the definition of racism, they meant they, it's like now it's been, I don't know if the dictionary's actually changed it, but it went from being like prejudiced based on race, like that, that was just the, or bias or whatever the definition fully was, to then be no, like it's, it, there has to be the power um, aspect to it. But that wasn't the like, that's not how racism was defined, defined previously. Sure. Doesn't matter. Uh, which I, I get that now. I, uh, on the one hand, I can, we can say it doesn't matter. On the other hand, it does. Because when you start telling people that, no, you've never experienced racism, when, like, or as a white person who taught in, a, in another place, like, no, I did experience it. It wasn't systemic. Like, I was like, not at all. But I did experience prejudice and bias because of my race. Like, you're dis- it, it changes that. But I think that that's part of when we talk about dictionaries and definitions and all of those things, like it's very important to recognize that historical linguistics is a thing. Like I have this whole shelf right here is set up for a historical understanding of Greek, but I can't use those words in Greek today the same way. And you can't even look at the words in Greek from like 200 years. So like ecclesia, right? The called out ones. That's not what it meant when it was written by Paul. It meant the assembly. So to say, like, look, we can look at this word and it means the called out ones. It's like, no, it doesn't. That's that's its root, but that's not what it means when Paul wrote it. Which using that historical understanding helps you understand, like, how do we get from an assembly to the called out ones? Like, oh, look, here's how their understanding of assembly then shapes their meaning of this word. And you're like, yeah, you have... You can't understand it in isolation. So, yeah. So we can now understand, we can understand racism as, oh, well, okay. So it it meant that, you know, you were, had this undue prejudice, but now we understand that racism typically has power behind it or else it's not really racism. So our definitions change. Do we need to know that that was the definition? Yes. We should have historical dictionaries, especially of English and even like really rapidly updated ones. But a dictionary is supposed to reflect the way the word is used, not tell us how to use the word. Yeah, there's words basically. So when you talk about this in linguistics, there is um, basically two ways to talk about like grammar and it helps with this kind of definition. So you have prescriptive grammar and descriptive grammar, right? Prescriptive grammar is you can't split infinitives, which doesn't matter in English because they're not attached to the word like in Latin, right? Because we can say to boldly go and that's fine, right? To boldly go where no man has gone before is absolutely fine English grammar. But if we're going to be prescriptive about it, we have to say to go boldly, right? We can't say to boldly go. But descriptive grammar says we can do that. It's like a whole may versus can. Uh, Descriptive grammar is basically like as it tastes like a cigarette should. We're using like as to introduce quotes. You don't know that, Rebecca? Oh my gosh. So that is not how like was supposed to be used. We use like now as a simile. Right. But before that advertisement, it tastes like a cigarette should. You could not use like in that manner. It was had to be as like was the wrong choice of grammar. 
And when they came out with that advertisement, it tastes like a cigarette should. It changed the entire grammatical structure surrounding like and as. That one advertisement. And so words change and we have to change the dictionary. (laughs) Even if it's like, oh, yeah, we should definitely change that. But people are all up in arms. Never mind the fact that people are calling 1984. Never mind the fact that Trump literally took out like transgender from public policy. That is 1984 level stuff. Yeah. Removing a word from public policy. That's different than changing a dictionary definition. I just want to get really snarky with the people who get mad about it because I can read old English. So I'm like, fine, we'll go back to the original English. Can you read Beowulf? I can. <laughs> right? Like, Listen, there are some things you can do, but you don't do them. Like read Beowulf. <laughs> I wonder how much of it in in our cultural context is the fact that it seems like because of social media and how fast things um, get blown up over and then like come down from essentially, if it ends up being something that like it was a slower change in previous things. I don't know. Well, yeah, you had to buy a new dictionary. I think we're also just more exposed. It's true. And so then things change fast when you're having a conversation and you're using the same word, but you're not using the same. It's like when we have a conversation about theology with Mormons, like you're using the same word. They don't mean the same thing. You keep saying this thing. I don't think it means what you think it means. I think part of it is that language has always changed at a similar speed inside of populations, but the whole common language can change so much faster now. Right. That. Thank you for saying what I <laughs> was trying to say. We used to have to be able to trade with people on the West Coast and they had to understand things. So because of the slowness, there was some amount of commonality. But now basically the language, uh, the common language of the whole world is like internet dialect. And so we just have the same speed of change happening across the globe instead of in isolated pockets. Because like it's always been weird things happening because if you look at middle middle English you can actually tell what part of the country and even in England in a small country where it's from because they use completely different words for stuff. Um the spelling's all wonky like I used to ha- I had to take a class and we had to be able to like recognize dialects be like this is from Sussex and this is from Essex and this is from London. Um because they use they use different letters, they use different like and that's how it happened concurrently so you sometimes have people who weren't always mutually in intelligible speak well, they were kind of mutually intelligible right but they would use words and you're like i don't know what that means it's like an even more dramatic version of british english to our current modern american english right but i think what we're seeing like you're saying is it's not so much that it's changing quicker it's that you see all of the regional dialects all at once versus i don't you know if i live in essex you know or whatever i'm not gonna like i'm not gonna hear scottish english if i live in the south of england in like 1250 Right. So like, I think it's that exchange because we're also like Caleb, it's basically what Caleb is saying. We're seeing this exchange of information and it's not so much that the main dialect is itself changing super rapidly, but we hear a whole bunch of dialects and we're actually losing them. They're all merging into one like super dialect of weird American English. Um, Like how Caleb can't pronounce things correctly. Correct. No, that's just because my tongue doesn't work right. The sociolinguist in me is like correct is super relative. Now that we've rabbit trailed. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to be the first to state my frustration that no one figured out what kind of kangaroo that was last week. But in another vein, I saw this story on Twitter. This is in Bay Village. Someone called the cops on a sleeping homeless person. Can we just talk about that for just just that, just for a second? That's just rude to interrupt someone's nap. People can't sleep anymore without getting the cops called on them. You know what really takes a, a lot of sleep, though? metal because this wasn't a homeless person it was a statue of jesus oh that's 
pretty glorious. A metal, a metal statue. I guess I should like lean into that part too. So uh, this is the the lead here. Twenty minutes after a homeless Jesus, in quotes, I'm not sure why, sculpture was installed on the grounds of St. Barnabas Episcopal Church in Bay Village. Someone called the cops. So a, a homeless person was sleeping on a bench in front of a church, is what this person thought, and they still called the cops. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, you can't have churches helping out homeless people. That wouldn't be supply-side Jesus. It has been uh, traveling to churches and other religious organizations across the region since October 2018. It is scheduled to be on site at St. Barnabas till December 1st. That just hurts my soul. What happened when this per- like Did this person find out how dumb they were? I mean, I just, I, I, I feel like I need more information or details over it should we should say that this is on october 12th uh the conf- the the police chief confirmed that the caller had advised uh police dispatch they were unsure if the homeless individual was a human being or a statue but they were sure that it was homeless even if it was a statue wow that's what it says i'm reading it exactly if the homeless individual was a human being or a statue. The, the, that sentence construction means that it was either a homeless human or a homeless statue. Yeah, or a statue of a homeless person. It was clearly meant to evoke homelessness. They really wanted to make sure that they weren't in any sort of medical distress. Uh-huh. Yeah, I totally believe that. I do not. I'm shaking my head no. You know, what I usually do if I see somebody who might need help, my first instinct is to call the police. What kind of help they need. That was heavy sarcasm there. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. It's like, what if this is, you know, like, I don't know. Like, I grew up where I trusted the police. So I was like, I might have if, if it was something like where I was not capable of helping. But if it was someone sitting on a bench, like, yeah, I can help with that. It does say... Additionally, if this were a homeless person, the officer would have checked to make sure the person was okay to see if they need anything. There are hotels in nearby cities that will give homeless individuals a free night stay. The officer could have helped to facilitate this. So they bust them out of town. So if we see them, there's no object permanence and there's no homeless people in our community. I didn't say it, but that seems to be what the article is saying. That is exactly what the city where I'm in does. However, if they did not want or need anything, the person would have been permitted to stay where they were. And maybe just maybe I'm the problem here. That wouldn't be a surprise. Right. Uh, But if you're concerned about this person's well-being, you can check on them. Like, are they breathing? Well, clearly they're not. So maybe like you don't just call that there's a homeless person sleeping. Like you think there might be a dead person. Yeah, that would be like if I touched a person. I mean, that would still be a funny news story, right? Like call the cops thinking it's a dead body and it's a statue of Jesus. I mean, that's also a pretty good headline. Breaking. He's not dead. Like that's a little bit more like you've taken the proper steps like hey i'm checking if this person is okay myself before just like calling the police yeah or like hey i think they might have od'd you need to send someone with like that whatever their narcan stuff is right is if they had voice some kind of concern other than there's a homeless person you need to get them out of here and i feel like maybe the article is is the headline is definitely misleading but like it does feel like this person had a care for this person sleeping on the bench like that seems legitimate but just feels like in society our first instinct is to call someone else to help instead of figuring out how to help them ourselves well because being homeless is illegal it's not directly illegal but we criminalize enough of the things that you have to do if you're homeless that being homeless is illegal Um, i mean it's basically illegal so my community is where uh, a lot of the people get bussed to from places like Salt Lake and Denver. We have a bus station right in the middle of nowhere. I never understood that. So here's the thing from our town. 17% of all citations are issued under five anti-homeless ordinances. So 17% of all the tickets given out in my city are for anti-homelessness things. Have you guys ever been to Hawaii? Yes. There's there's uh, 
uh, quite a homeless population there because people would buy one-way tickets to Hawaii and put people on planes. It's actually why we have a lot of people here is our weather's pretty temperate for Colorado. So you won't freeze and die if you live out here in the winter. Oh, well, that's helpful. Yeah. I mean, at least where I am, when they bus all of the people away, it's because there's golf tournaments and they don't want them around with all of the tourists. Yeah, that's, that happens here too. We live close to Aspen and Telluride. My city just says, hey, we realized if we get too many homeless people in one area, that's bad. So let's spread them out. We have the only shelter that houses entire families between Salt Lake City and Denver. That's eight hours. That's awful. There's four hours either direction. How big direction. is that shelter? 255 beds. Ooh, so 60, 60 families? For eight hours of people spread out. Wow. Yeah, uh, but you know, America, we, we believe in like justice and equality for everybody. So, you know. We we believe it. Uh-huh. We don't practice it. Oh, you have to practice what you believe? New information. No. Oh. That's workspace salvation, Matt. Rough, man. I mean, we're in the in central Washington. We don't have a huge homeless population. But the churches, like seven years ago, got together to run the cold weather shelter, which basically is just like, okay, place to sleep, meals overnight, and then like hooking them up with resources as far as um, or having resources available to like help them get on their feet. And some of them don't don't want the resources. And that's just something that we have to be okay with. Um, and it's only like 15 or 20 people. But like, I, I don't understand how bigger places like Salt Lake City doesn't have better... Because they send them to my town. Have you been to downtown Salt Lake? It's like the Stepford Waves. Yeah, no, I haven't. Nate has though. And he talked about how he went there for a conference and they happened to be there like during general, like their annual, the general conference thing. And so everybody was like in their, you know, White, like all, all the guys were in their white shirts and their crisp Mormon clothes. And um, Nate's professor was wearing like a bright red button down shirt, like with his slacks. And he's like, oh my gosh, I'm like Satan walking through Salt Lake City. Like all these, all these LDS people wearing their white pressed crisp shirts. And he's in a bright red one. It was amazing. We went to the Mall of America the other day because... You had to go to Hot Topic for something. As you do. My mom my mom was here and wanted to buy her a hoodie. Uh, so we got her a My Hero Academia hoodie. You've literally reached the limit of my knowledge. But um, we went in there and there was like, it was Mormon Missionary Day at the Mall of America, apparently. In Hot Topic? Because that makes it even better. No, they weren't all at Hot Topic. Man, that would have made it so much better. But there was, I saw at least 20 Mormon missionaries in the mall on a random Monday. Wow, they must have been all like shopping for their white shirts. It was it was a very strange sight to see that many more missionaries together because they're always in pairs, like, you know. Right. I've seen them in pairs. It's different to see a gaggle of them. Well, Lindsay and I were leading people to hell. So this week on the internet... It's Pastor Appreciation Month. Well, it was, until you learned you weren't appreciated. Yeah, seriously. Uh, yeah, Kyle, but we've never done anything for it. So I was like, oh yeah, it's Pastor Appreciation Month. None of our students care. <laughs> usually, usually Pastor Appreciation Month sneaks up on me because like all of a sudden there's like a whole stack of cards like in my mailbox at church or something. And it's like, wait, what did I do that I'm in trouble? And then it's like, oh, oh, it's Pastor Appreciation. Okay. Oh, I'm appreciated. I'm not in trouble. This time. You know, it's crazy to me how much appreciate Pastor Appreciation looks a lot like the whole faith and allegiance to Jesus thing. It only we just do it once every once in a while and make a big show of it and think that counts for everything. It does. I mean, that escalated quickly. I was thinking about it. I was like, you know, you know what? I actually appreciate people like actually like doing stuff and like following Jesus. 
versus just making a big show of it. I mean, like, we got you a card. I'm like, I don't need a card. I hey, everybody, we really need some volunteers to uh, do anything. So October should be like volunteer month. We're like, hey, I know you appreciate me. Let's talk about that. I don't know. When, when I was on staff at a church, that would fund my Dunkin' Donuts habit for like months. That is true. So, you know, I do appreciate the gift cards and all of those things. Like, those are nice, as well as, as you know, volunteering and all of those things. But the other day on Facebook, everybody in this group knows it, but a friend of ours uh, made a post. We should have brought him on today, too. We should have, but he's working. But he, he made a post saying that he appreciates women pastors, which is apparently now defined as heresy by a great many people on the interwebs, who, first off, that's not what heresy is even if it's unbiblical. And then second off, as we're going to talk about in a little bit, like there's there's tons of women in ministry in the Bible and, and like a, a pretty good amount of support for that all throughout scripture. That requires reading scripture in historical context. No, you, you can even read it outside of historical context. You could read it in the context of today and see that women in ministry is supported in scripture. What you have to not do is take a four verses and isolate them and then use them to say that this isn't a thing. My attention span isn't enough for anything longer than four verses, Caleb. That just means you're an American. Sorry, I'm painting my nails and I just dropped my <laughs> I just dropped my my painter thing. And let me just say bending over is not super easy right now. The most ADD thing Rebecca has done. That is not true at all. <laughs> we should point out on previous podcasts, Rebecca has been folding cards or paper of some sort, which you might have heard that one. Like that one we could hear. But um, Lindsay has knitted sweaters or gloves on while we were recording. Like, this is not a rare occurrence. Nope. I just dropped the, the nail polish thing, though, which is unfortunate because it belongs to my neighbor. So it's not like it's my nail polish. that. Okay. But anyway, what I was going to say <laughs> was the post. It wasn't just that, like, people were disagreeing with women in ministry. It, like, it escalated remarkably quickly to both men and women, like this was not just men who were saying like women are whatever or shouldn't be pastors, but they took it so far as to say that we were Jezebels who were, uh, who were going against the ordained order of God and were leading people to hell. Yeah, it's fun. So I, on that post, I put up a comment. I told be I encourage people to private message me if they want to have a, uh, conversation about this. Caleb, how many private messages did you get? One! That is a, an increase. But it wasn't an invitation to have a further dialogue. Oh. It was it was a uh, message telling me that I have a Jezebel spirit and that I need to repent of my sin. That's weirdly egalitarian of them to use a female insult. Why do people not respond to me when I say things? You didn't, re did you respond to him? I did. I, you know, I dialogued with him. I gave him some verses and then, you know, as he kept on saying nasty things and whatnot. It's like, yeah, you know what? This is just unhealthy. And so I told him that I was going to block him and explain my reasons. And then I blocked him. At least you explain why you block people. Matt just blocks people and then they wonder why. Yeah, they know why. <laughs> I know. So yeah, I feel like this, this is something that comes up like every October. In particular, like this friend of ours, and who's another minister, like he has, he routinely posts things in support of the women ministers in his life. And is like routinely goes to bat for it as do matt and caleb so i'm not like not saying you guys don't um but like this is like an annual thing where then these these 
these people come out with their their vitriol. So this is a thing that apparently, you know, needs to be addressed. And I think it's one thing to have people say like, I disagree with it, even if I'm, even if I think they're wrong, but to like accuse women who are serving Jesus of leading people to hell. <laughs> I mean, that's just taking it a little bit too far. Well, I mean, it has 365 comments this post does and 92 shares so some of the people weren't even his friends they they got sucked into the social media outrage machine yeah they went into the yeah because people had shared it probably in support and my home church thinks i'm a heretic if anyone from my home church saw that i was doing any of this i grew up in a denomination that did not um let- but you wouldn't be a heretic Sorry, go ahead. But they would think it was heresy. (laughs) Well, they're wrong. They're wrong in a lot of things. (laughs) Because heresy is specifically going against one of the creeds of the church. Yeah, but they don't really believe in creeds either. So, (laughs) although ironically, women could be missionaries because it tells you a lot about our speaking of racism earlier. Like you could go preach to men who aren't white. Yeah, that's a real problem. I think I at least have a little bit more respect for people who like don't have women. Like if you're not going to have women be in in, in pastoral leadership roles, then it then, then at least be consistent and don't let them teach at all because you're... It is consistent to their worldview though because those men don't count as men. Like it's racism. Ex- yeah. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that. I'm saying like then women shouldn't be in children's ministry or because if because the Bible doesn't say just don't have women like that women can teach children ultimately doesn't say that but at least be more at least be consistent and like not let women be I mean and I know there are churches in this way so I don't know I feel like I have a little bit more respect for that even if I still hate it than people who say like well you can teach kids and you can teach youth, but by, you know, what's, what's the age limit and cut off that now you can't teach them because they're too old to learn from you. That seems worse to me. I don't know. Maybe I'm just justifying it, but. I don't think you can logic people out of a position they never logic themselves into. Also a good point. But it's kind of like, if you're not gonna, you know, if you're really anti Harry Potter, at least be consistent and be anti Narnia and Lord of the Rings too. No, I want to only dislike one thing at a time. My favorite thing is when the people who really like to use like Genesis one through three is an excuse of why women can't be in leadership. And then you bring up the year of jubilee and they're like that was the old testament (laughs) let me pick and choose what i like from the bible even if you just go back to genesis it's like yeah so where where is the hierarchy in in genesis one through three can you can you show me oh it's in genesis three like it's in genesis three i think that that there is a hierarchy there it's in genesis three it's not in the creation there's a distinction of roles in some ways no i i think hold on let me pull it up i don't think that that's a hierarchy well i think it's a description of what fallen humanity looks like right like caleb i've heard what you said i disagree with you pretty severely on this one because the whole your desire should be for your husband and he should rule over you right that is a very much a fallen this is what the fall will bring and that's what we see through human history your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you it does not mean that that's the way it's supposed to be because none of this is the way it's supposed to be and christ definitely reversed the curse and if we actually believe that christ reversed the curse then he reversed all of it not just the parts that we don't like so yes but i definitely believe that the curse has in it a not a provision and i don't think it was a curse as in like you're bad like i'm cursing you it's like well this is what's going to happen now and what's going to happen now is your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over so I think that that's a description of what happens, but that's not an authority that's given to him. No, absolutely not. If it's authority he's taking that he shouldn't have in the same way that they're already trying to make themselves like God, right? And so using it to explain gender hierarchies is ridiculous as a redeemed group of people. So Genesis 3 is describes a thing that happens, but it's not a hierarchy that's put in place as a result of the fall. 
But to go back to a previous discussion, which may or may not be in the podcast, we have to understand how language evolved to know where we're at. So we have to understand that patriarchy is part of the fall. And if we're going to discuss like the way that Christ redeems, which is a totalitarian redemption. What's the word I'm looking for? Total redemption? Absolute redemption? Absolute better. Yeah, total doesn't seem... Totalitarian redemption? That sounds not great. I tried that. It didn't work out. Cosmic? Ooh, I like cosmic. It's it's a real big redemption, y'all. And it's supposed to take us back to the creation and the pre-fall Edenic times. And in that sense, like we have to look at every single piece of this and say, oh, well, maybe snakes shouldn't crawl on their belly. Okay, maybe not that one because snakes. But there's definitely this idea that he will rule over you, not intended. You can't say that after, you can't, you cannot say, hey, all of these bad things are part of what what's going to happen. Except for this one. This one was out how it already was. And now we're just going to keep with that. No, come on. That's, that is poor reading. Which I think this, it might be helpful then too, to at least discuss the maybe bad theology of, um, or bad linguistic understanding and word choice of what help meet means in creation. Because there is... Or we could talk about the idea that when it says that, that he took a rib, it wasn't singular. Well, that, I don't know that that's relevant. Oh, I think it's definitely relevant. I don't think it is. It's not that he took one piece of it. He took half the man and made a whole another person. I don't think that matters. Oh, I think it does. No, because regardless of whether it was a small piece or a big piece, it is the same substance that Eve is made out of. So regardless of whether it was a small piece or a big piece... They are the same substance. I see. I don't think so. They are st- he is still flesh of flesh and bone of bone, regardless of whether or not it was just a small piece of fleshy rib or a big piece of fleshy rib. It was still the same substance. They still ontologically fit together. So I, I understand, Caleb, you're, the, the validity of what you're saying of that like quantity doesn't equal quality. And yet in the context of, of us discussing creation and women in ministry and like this whole thing where it has been so ingrained in our culture that, um, that women are less than I think making the point that there is this like that 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 the amount matters I think is a valid argument or a valid thing to discuss and maybe even emphasize and focus on because we've been so ingrained with like Plato and Aristotle's ideas of and early church fathers of the lack of equality or lack of value that women were created with I mean they're the interpretations of of the creation story by church fathers are, are terrible in that's just a kind word. So I think you're right. I think, Caleb, I would say you're right that maybe it shouldn't matter. But I think that Matt saying that it does, like, I think Matt's argument for it mattering is more relevant to culturally what we find ourselves in now. It's not a discardable piece you would be just fine without. Right. No, absolutely not. Right. Like, it's not just some little piece of Adam where now he's fine. It's your floating rib. You'll be okay. <laughs> like, But if you're going to go back and, and read the Genesis 2 passage, it's, it's like super weird, right? Like the man is there and then God's like, you know what? It's not good for you to be alone so i'm going to take all of these various animals and show them to you and then after you look at all of these animals now you're going to realize that you you need something else and so it's then that god takes um adam and puts him into sleep and then takes a section of him a piece a rib a side a sailor, whatever you want to say, and and builds that out of him. But John Walton argues that what we see happening there with the animals being brought to him is that Adam is looking and seeing that no 
animal can function in the way that he needs somebody else to function in order for sacred space to be taken care of. Man is incapable of functioning without an ontological equal to help him. And so that is when woman is made of the same substance. So the fact that it's the same substance is what matters, not necessarily the amount. And so I'm going to agree that I think the text is is definitely half, right, side, because Sela is usually an architectural term. So here's the thing, though, that I disagree with and, and why I disagree. I think that it matters how, how that split happened, and here's why. Because in the Genesis 1 account, it says that male and female he created in his image, right? Yes. Both of them in his image as not, there's no hierarchy in that ontology, right? So then when you go to Genesis 2, if he only takes a rib, then he has already formed male, and then he forms female out of male. Okay. But it's not possible for it to only be a rib because of of what the text says, right? Right. So Adam looks at, or the man looks at the woman and says, this is bone of bone, flesh of flesh. I think we're getting in the weeds though. Like, Yeah. So Caleb, I think you're missing what I'm saying because I'm saying that- You're as bad as Trump and Biden. He created, right? And if, if God created male- and out of male, he is splitting a, a small piece of that and making female. Then there is this idea that male came, a female came from male. However, if it is literally a split where here is the image of God, he has made human. Here is Adam, right? Not Adam, but Adam. And then that is split into male and female, which is what it looks like Genesis 2 is trying to say. Now, it's to, it makes it makes perfect sense the previous passage. There is no indication that Adam, Adam in the previous in the previous section is male, but now we have male and female from one, this one image of God. So the implication being that both are made in the image of God, Eve is not made in the image of Adam. And that's why he's making that distinction. Exactly. They are equal. And that's why the fall is so devastating, not because of anything else, but because these two beings who came from one, who came from one image, have now become two images. And that's why they come together as one again. Like it's it's reverting back. That's why I think it's important that it's not just a small piece of Adam. I think it is half of him. Okay, I'm going to agree with you that it's half of him. I just don't think that the text necessarily says that it's half of him. Uh, I don't think it says it. I think we have to understand it. Let the reader understand. I think it might be important to realize that it's not a small piece. And that's how we've taken it before. Right. It is not a small piece. Adam would not function. He could not live without that piece. Correct. We already see that he could not function as the caretaker of the garden without her. That was not possible. But those are two different things, though. You, you've said two different things. You've said one that he can't live and one that he can't function. He can clearly live without her, but he can't function in, in fullness without his helpmeet. But I think that's telling because when God talks about Eve, he doesn't describe her as subservient. He describes her ultimately as a source that the poets used to talk about, like God rescuing him. Them. Okay, so Robert Atler talks about the word help. Um, and, and, and help is just a terrible word for that. Uh, because help is generally, I'm gonna just gonna read his quote here. Help is too weak because it suggests a merely auxiliary function, whereas Ezra elsewhere connotes active military intervention on behalf of someone. End quote. So it, it's not just that it's better for a man to have somebody else with him than it is for it not to be that, but he's totally incapable of accomplishing his purpose without that companion. What book is that quote from? That is from Atler's 
the Hebrew Bible, a translation with commentary. I think that, again, we're probably splitting hairs here. And by probably, I mean, I know we are when we're talking about whether or not he was half or if he was a piece, because that piece is, is like a rather large piece. And Adam and Eve are created as equals. They're ontologically the same substance. Caleb, what does ontologically mean for people who don't know what that is, if they're listening? Oh, ontologically would be metaphysical, right? The metaphysical substance is the same because the text... That's not a helpful definition. <laughs> I know, I'll get there. Um, so... Genesis chapter two is is not about the physical stuff that Adam and Eve are made from because dust can't be constructed into a person. It's not about the literal material things that are there. We don't have a description of some surgery when Eve is created because who would see it? No, it's a visionary experience, the same type of visionary experience that happens with Abraham later on in the book of Genesis, where he sees God come. So it's a story about not their material substance, but about that deeper underlying substance that describes the things behind and alongside of the material world. So it's to help us understand purpose and intent, not just actual like science textbooky understanding of where women come from. Yes because Eve was not literally made from slicing a man in half. It is a visionary experience where Eve is a, made from the side of or the rib of Adam. It's not a, this is materially how God did it. God took his hands, ripped a man in half, and then formed the two halves out of him, which is very much how it reads, right? But was, that's why we were stuck in the weeds, right? Is because we were trying to help people understand that this is not just saying this is about this component piece, but the intent is that man and woman are both created in the image of God versus Eve being created in Adam's image, which is how we've accidentally ended up. Well, we've accidentally ended up there because of Paul. Yeah, I don't think that that's a good reading of Paul either because... Well, no, it's totally not. <laughs> He doesn't say out of there, there's her gendered language just has so many problems because you can't say out of man, he created woman. That's absolutely true. But like man has to be understood as humanity out of anthropo. He created, which I, I don't know that that's what it is, but I would imagine to move to move to what Paul says, where we get a lot of our. Yeah, where is that at? A uh, first Corinthians 11. Oh, man. I, this is where a lot of the weirdness comes from, though, right? Because this is going to be Paul talking about head coverings is all of the things here. I'll start reading at verse seven. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. It is that passage that causes confusion. Question. Paul likes to quote people without attribution, and then he responds to their argument from this. It sounds like he's talking about someone else's thing that he's been told, or like he's like the whole chunk about all this stuff is the argument, and then he's like, you could put it in quotes, and then he's like, nevertheless, I haven't studied this as much as I should. Um, right? But he does that in other places, and some of those things that we really pull out of character for Paul are often those kinds of arguments where you're like, he's actually talking about someone else's stuff there, and then he responds to it accordingly. 
right? Because you could go almost all of that into the verse 11. And then he's like, okay, nevertheless, this is what you're talking about. This is what y'all are saying. And here's my response to what you're talking about. Um, I don't know if that's a common thought about that at all, but. Yeah, I actually wondered that too, from the standpoint of like, when, because he does do that in his other letters, like reiterating, this is the argument, or this is the thing that you guys are saying. And then he's going, just kidding. Like, this is not correct. Matt, who, who did you pull up? Who are you pulling up to look at this verse in? There's only one person to pull up pull up to look at this verse. I know that, but I don't have him. It's Gordon Fee. I don't have Gordon Fee's First Corinthians commentary. I have the second edition of Gordon Fee's First Corinthians commentary. Yeah, which is funny because he basically talks about like women who pray and prophecy too, right? <laughs> He's like, women shouldn't have authority, but the ones who pray and prophesy. So there's clearly something happening here that is more complicated than modern complementarians like to make it. And I know I've always seen things about, you know, Roman women, only women of standing being able to cover their hair. So there's actually some really interesting cultural things happening with like all women get to cover their hair um, and the fact that they all have dignity and worth and they're not like getting shamed for their pasts and prostitute and low standing and all that. All right. So this is what this is what Fee says on his uh, eight through nine section. And, and I'm just going to read part of it. Most likely the answer lies in what has already been suggested. And in this instant, Paul really is reflecting the sense of the Old Testament text to which he is alluding. Adam by himself was not complete. He was alone without a companion or helper suitable to him. The animals will not do. He needs one who is bone of his bone, one who is like him but different from him, one who is uniquely his own glory. In fact, when the man in the Old Testament narrative sees the woman, he glories in her by bursting into song. She is thus man's glory because she came from man and was created for him. She is not thereby subordinate to him, but necessary for him. She exists to his honor as the one who, having come from the man, is the one companion suitable to him so that he might be complete and that together they might form humanity. Yeah, I think we have a faulty understanding of glory, right? Because like God's glory falls in the temple and it's not lesser than God, right? Like it's part of who he is and complements his nature. Um, he's like, here's how I am, God's glory is present and people can't be around it. It's not like it's lesser than God. And I think we hear man's glory, right? And I think the instinct is to make it lesser until you look back, like you're saying the Old Testament understanding of that. And you're like, wait, no, God's glory is a big deal. And it is not lesser to sort of be a man's glory is not necessarily a hierarchical experience. Yeah, and here Paul's using Andros and Gune. Now you're just making up words. So it definitely seems like he he is taking the story more literally than I think I would. Okay, so Caleb, to your point, I don't know here if Paul's interpretation of the text is to be taken as the authoritative interpretation of the text, because I think he's using his interpretation of the text here to supplement his argument about head coverings. Right. I'm just saying this is uh, a lot of the confusion is backed up by what this text here appears to be saying. And whatever head means. So I do think that discussing like the headship idea and, and things is important because the that that tends to be the biggest like colloquial argument. Ooh, I'll read what I wrote. What you wrote where? On the thread. Because someone said that the language is plain, that man is head of the woman. And I said, what is plainest in in first corinthians but it's the same word so you can play with them both ways yeah um i reject that the language is plain because the word used to prohibit women from reading from leading men is used only once in the new testament so the word in second timothy nope first timothy i always get those mixed up uh is only used once in the in the new testament and i said and if you're saying that man is the head of the woman in an authoritarian sense you have to wrestle with first corinthians 11 if the analogy is to hold true, then you have to hold, because of the, quote, plain reading of the text, 
that Christ is eternally subordinate to the Father. Because in verse uh, verse 3 it says, But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. If head there means authority, then by definition, Christ is subordinate to God. So, if kephale means authority, then Paul is saying that the Son is subordinate to the Father. However, if kephale here and elsewhere is better understood as source, not an authoritarian sense, the argument about men being the authority in, in the marriage relationship is not tenable. Which I'm sure is some way like people disagree with it, but I just don't understand how. This is huge, right? Because like I was saying, like we have like people read that one sentence and they forget the next line, right? But every woman who prays or prophesies, right? It's like they're allowed to pray and prophesy, right? Which is Paul already saying some crazy stuff because they're not really supposed to be in public, really, especially Roman women, right? Like, no, you don't go out and hang out with people who aren't your spouse. He's in Cor- in Corinth. He's writing to Greek, mm-hmm. but yeah, but they're like, but he's also dealing with a lot of like the Hellenized Greek stuff happening or Rome, Hellenized Roman stuff going on in like world and like and he's dealing with some of these different cultures but like he's giving them position that they didn't have culturally he's already giving them more agency he's doing that and uh, something he's at least acknowledging their agency right like i'm i'm not convinced that he's giving them any more agency especially because we know no we we know of the 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 cults especially where where women were the power and we know that women owned plenty of businesses and were heads of households like it's right this is in corinth corinth is where the biggest temple the aphrodite was in the ancient world the debauchery abounds women in power isn't weird here but what what paul is doing here i think he is making a change though right because there is still even amongst women who have power there's hierarchies paul is saying that everybody wears a head covering you know who didn't get to wear head coverings in those days any low-class women or prostitutes paul is saying everybody wear a head covering because these divisions amongst the high-class women and the low-class women, that's not okay. And so whenever somebody is praying or prophesying in public, the fact that they are a slave or that they are a prostitute is irrelevant. Put on a head covering so that way the substance that God is speaking through you is what is judged and not the fact that you're a slave. What's well, the same thing we see when he talks about modesty and stuff like that later, because it's basically, if anyone's ever read Shakespeare, right? The whole joke is somebody puts on different clothes and no one knows who they are anymore because you mark so much of your status by your clothing. And so people could look at you and be like, this person's important. I just do that with Clark Kent. Yeah, right. Some, if somebody puts on glasses and you don't know who they are, right? Oh, no, no. No, it is. It's, it's Zoe Deschanel with bangs. <laughs> Yeah, she does look very different. Or without bangs. Sorry. But it's like, that's, you know, we're seeing that same thing. And actually, so thinking about it, um, what could be really happening here, he's actually walking the women back, right? Like you were saying, right? If you have things like Ephesus and Artemis and all this stuff going on, like he's actually giving a lot of standing to like, this is what you look like as co-heirs in Christ, which is part of why he's hitting a lot of the stuff with like, you have to share your power and authority, right? So these women who are used to having like, no, you like telling the men like, shut up, sit down. I'm in charge. This is the temple of Artemis. Like, we'll do what I want. Exactly. He's basically establishing actual egalitarian theology here. If you realize he's talking to the, like the people where you've got Ephesus and you've got some crazy stuff going on. Because this is in Ephesus and because this is in Corinth where these things are addressing, he's actually elevating men to the same position that they are elsewhere in religious status right because it's like you are both co-heirs in this you are equal neither of you is more important and that's really significant yeah or in the timothy passage it's hey sit down and learn yes the learning point people really just gloss over that one some for some reason but You're allowed to be here and learn from this <laughs> it's it's mary sit at my feet don't be martha be a disciple and then at some point you will be the one i say 
go tell my brothers that I am risen. Right. Yeah. You don't have women be the witnesses unless the women are actually the witnesses, right? Because they don't have the same credibility in his court of law. So if the first people to know who Jesus is are these women. They're the first people preaching the good news of the resurrection. And the Samaritan woman is the first person who recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah, right? Like he keeps finding these women to go do stuff. I have problems with that. The Samaritan woman thing in John, she's the first one. Okay, she's the, yeah, she's maybe one of the first. Is that better? One of the first people to understand? No, because John's just not synchronous at all. And so there's no telling when that story happened. It could have been well after the Peter incident. That's fair. The, the disciples could have already known. Even in the text of John, that's after John 3.16, when he's talking with Nicodemus meeting in secret. So even inside of the text of John itself, like they know. They do, but he highlights the fact that this woman goes and finds it and she is going and telling her entire community. So there's like, there's John is highlighting the fact that this woman is the one going to share it. Oh, right. Well, it's still a huge deal. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't make it any less of a deal, regardless of whether she was the first or not. She's one of the only people highlighted getting it, maybe. <laughs> and she gets it after Nicodemus doesn't. Hey, Nicodemus is a great guy. Oh, he's totally great. But it's definitely set up rhetorically in the fact that you see this guy who should get it and doesn't quite. And then this woman who's coming out of left field and she's like, oh, you're the Messiah. Okay. So... We were we were talking about women in ministry, and we've sort of went off and talked about some of the relevant passages, which is very important to do. But Matt, there's no passage in scripture that says that women can be pastors. So deal with that. There's no passage in scriptures where uh, the scripture says men can be pastors. It says they can be elders. Presbyters. The, the problem of pastors is problematic. Like, I'll, I'll pontificate for a second. We have so deeply broken Paul's message in Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, that first off, we said, here are five offices and you're going to fit into one of these. Or we made the list a list. Like, if, if you've never read any sort of Hebrew literature, uh, let me help you out here. Lists aren't encompassing, right? There are six things the Lord hates, seven things he detests. Right. Like the, the point isn't that these are the seven. It's like, there's a lot of stuff he doesn't like. Or one of my favorites, Saul has slain his thousands and David's his tens of thousands. What does it mean that David's slain more people? It's like, look at what God has done. Right. The, the point isn't these people and Saul should have known that, but he didn't. And so we've got all of these problems where we've made that list and others to be all encompassing. And by doing that, we've said, okay, well, these are the offices. You're either an apostle, an evangelist, a prophet, a teacher, or a pastor. Did I get all of them in Ephesians 4? I feel like I got all of them. And so because of that, because of that, we've said, okay, well, these are the things you can do. And then we've limited that to people, which I don't understand. Like a pastor is someone who cares and takes care of others, right? And is called by God to do so. And anyone can fill that role. There's no gendered language around pastors there. Now, overseers, there's a little bit in Timothy that like maybe there's some things there. And that could also be and the women likewise. Right. And the women likewise. Right. In Timothy, for sure. I'm not sure that that doesn't appear in Titus. So maybe there's maybe possibly a smidgen of an argument there. Right. But then it's a high calling to it's it's a high calling to be an overseer, which we don't even know what that completely means and we certainly don't have them in our society mm -hmm. and especially in our churches we call lead pastors pastors but a lot of times they're preachers and when they try to be leaders they end up failing not because they're not good leaders but because leadership is really difficult and it takes a lot of people around you to do it well so can women be pastors sure because the text doesn't say men can be pastors either it just says that they are given to the church i think like I was 
mentioning we kind of briefly in passing, right? Like if we do the pastors as the person who's kind of reading scripture and explaining it, Phoebe, right, in Romans 16, she's the one taking the letter from the Rome, like from Paul to the Romans. And if we understand how ancient letter writing went, right, she's the one who's explaining anything that's unclear. They're like, hey, what did Paul mean when he said this? Right. She's doing the modern office of pastor. She's like, here's what's going on, or at least a, you know, at least a traveling evangelist. Right? She's at least preaching. She is clearly a leader in the church that Paul trusts. To explain his theology to these people in Rome. She's teaching, which I think is even the more important distinction that because we see, because so many people use the clobber passage in First Timothy to say, yeah, and let's, let's read that passage and then I'll let you come back. I'll read it so that way they know because some people aren't ever going to go look it up and then they're going to be like clobbered. So I'm just going to read it here and then you can finish if you can. Fine. If I can remember what I was going to say. First Timothy, if you can't, I've already messed it up. First Timothy 2, 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Okay, so the the teaching portion of that, the fact is, fact of the matter is that Phoebe was put into a, a position to teach. Whether we want to say that her delivering the letter to the Romans was akin to the office of modern day kind of office idea of pastor or not, she would be in a position to teach what Paul was saying at that point. And I think that is, you know, we, we can, we can say, well, it was, it was, it was like this or it was like that, but, but it was ultimately teaching and that, so then wrestling with and saying like, okay, so Paul's saying in one letter, you know, that he's, he's trusting these women to, to teach his complex theology. And then in another says, I don't permit a woman to assume authority over man or to, or to teach. So there, we have to reconcile these two ideas, but that's been really difficult for people to, to reconcile. So the, so it's easier to take the first Timothy verse and just say like, no, women aren't supposed to teach. So if I can, I want to play devil's advocate here. Of course you do. And by devil's advocate, I mean the Southern Baptist's advocate. So um, Phoebe wasn't assuming authority over a man because she was under Paul's authority as she was simply interpreting Paul's letter. So she wasn't assuming authority over a man. She was simply delivering the message and explaining it. But underneath of the authority of an apostle. Cool. Does that mean I can preach under the authority of Jesus and just explain the Bible? No, because Jesus isn't an apostle. Only if you have the necessary prerequisites, such as the Holy Spirit. Deal. Which, to anybody that has read Acts chapters 1 and 2, you see that there were women in the house where the Holy Spirit came, and the Holy Spirit came on all of the people, and we see that the men and the women prophesy. So, I mean, you've probably got some pretty convincing arguments there. Well, to jump off of that point, like, part of what Paul is saying in this First Timothy passage is not specifically for women. It's like, hey, learn and don't take authority that isn't yours, right? Part of the beauty of what Paul did with Phoebe is she's he sent her with a letter and sent her with his authority. Now, she has the authority of Paul. That's something that most modern people, like, it doesn't click in their brains. Like when I give you my authority, you have every little bit of authority that I have. Like, that's the point. Talk about a leadership podcast. So like when Jesus says all authority in heaven on earth. Yes. Big deal. <laughs> all exousia, right? And that's the beautiful part is it's exousia. Whereas in 
Timothy, it's the only time he uses Althantane. It's the only time in the New Testament it's used. And it's this idea of independent authority that you have assumed for yourself, not authority that's been given to you. And in the church, the only authority you have is what's been given to you by the church and specifically from elders or apostles. And and that's where, you know, that's in you, right? It's like, don't try to take over something that's not yours to take over. Right. Absolutely. And that's, that's part of, I mean, it's difficult sometimes because you definitely think that, man, I should be the one in power here, but that's not how the church is supposed to work. The church is supposed to be mutual submission where we say, you know, this person, this person has wisdom. This person has intelligence. This person is someone who can lead. So we are all going to recognize that this person can lead. It is not a place where you get in front of people and say, I am the authority here. It is a place where you come in and serve. And then they're like, hey, you're serving really well. Let's give you some authority, which young pastors, ourselves included, could also often like really should take that to heart more often because that humility is super important. And I think that that's specifically what Paul's saying here. And he wouldn't give this instruction. This is not an instruction just to women. I think that's something that often is missed right? But if you're a man and you don't understand, sit quietly and learn. Don't get up and start being boisterous. Sit quietly and learn. And then once you've done that, don't assume authority. I think a part of it we talked about a little bit earlier is First Timothy is written to Ephesus. Again, a place where there's a rather large temple to a goddess, where it is the women who have authority. And so, pagan believers who have come to faith in Jesus automatically assume that women are the ones who are supposed to be teaching because that's how it is at the cult of Artemis. That's how it is at the temple in town. So this is a law of saying, you know what? No, you don't teach when you've not learned, even though you've come here from your religion where you were the teacher. That's not how the kingdom of God works. You don't get to step in And you don't get to step in and be the first. You get to step in and be the last. And by practicing being the last, you will become the first. So there was the town halls last night. Dueling town halls. Dueling town halls. How are you doing, Lindsay? Um. How, well, how does that go? Someone, does anyone know the... Dueling banjos? <laughs> no, no. I was the... the. Oh, what's the Star Wars music? Duel of Fates. Yeah, there we go. Duel of Fates. Dun, 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 dun. No, Lindsay's got it. <laughs> we might play 15 seconds of it in here somewhere. Oh, one of the greatest pieces of cinematic music longest longest uh fencing scene in cinema history so Lindsay, what's your take you have to leave in like five minutes so yeah honestly i read trump's transcript and it kind of hurt my soul a little bit because i would have failed a speech class if i did a debate like that very it was very good though it was very very good it was tremendous it was tremendous some people say that he's the best at uh town halls well it's just the inability to say anything and commit to it because I think he's lied so many times. There is no, he doesn't have a grasp on truth anymore. It's like the whole, the biblical thing when it talks about idols and it's like, you're going to become like the idols, man. You're going to become disconnected from reality. You're going to become unseen. You're going to be unhearing and unhinged, right? Because you have no basis in reality anymore. You're like the thing you worship. And just, they asked him like, you know, did you test, like, did you test negative the day of the debate that you were supposed to, because that was the honor code thing. And he refused to commit to it. He's like, well, I was feeling great. I remember. He said he couldn't remember if he took a test. So here's the thing. I, I believe that as often as he's tested, that there's a full possibility that he does not remember if he was tested that day. 
personally. Someone on his staff knows, and therefore he should know. So then one of two things is a problem here. Either he is lying or no one on his staff told him. And both of those are problematic when you're the leader of the free world. But is America the leader anymore? No, but we're pretending like we are for a little while longer unless we actually degrade more. Sorry. Yeah, it's real bad. I, I do think there's some validity to that of like, you know, saying, does he remember? At the same time, I feel like that's something that in preparation for the debate that would have been made a, a big deal or would have been focused on to like make sure. Sure. So the fact that, again, like you said, Matt, that, I mean, it's it's problematic that nobody knows regardless. Or it's, the, the, the third possibility is that he was tested and it was positive and they didn't do anything about it. At the first debate, he didn't arrive to the debate early enough to be tested, which could have just been a clever way by his campaign people who knew he had tested. At the first debate? Yeah, the first debate. He didn't arrive in time to be tested. But they weren't testing on site, were they? They were testing on site. Joe Biden got a test on site, but Trump arrived late. Okay, got it. So Trump arrived late. I suspect, this is my theory of what's happening inside the administration, Caleb's theory of the case. They knew he would test positive that day when he was on the stage with Joe Biden and simply made him arrive late so that way he wouldn't be tested there. That's what I think happened. It's definitely possible. It's not falsifiable. So it's as much true as anything that comes out of the New York Post. I I, I don't know. Again, I, I think it's honestly possible that Trump didn't know if he got tested that day. I don't think that he was lying. I do not personally think that Trump was lying when asked last night if he didn't know that he got tested or not. But I think that's the problem. Like, I think that's as much the problem as it is a lie. If he had outright lied to me, I might feel better about it. Just the complete incompetence that it shows to not even know. Yeah. Right. Because somebody on his team knows and someone on his team did not tell him in this de- in this run up, which he knew he was going to get asked whether or not that was a thing. So I, I don't know about you guys, but the place I work, communication's huge. We are always in communication. We talk about managing expectations. We talk about communicating standards like communication is key. And if you're not communicating, the problem isn't somebody else. It's you. Yeah. And here Someone didn't communicate to him. So someone on his staff made an error. They should have communicated to him. Then we had to ask why, what what happened with the staff? Like these are these are questions that we should be digging into. No matter the administration, if this was a, any administration, we had this issue. Like these are the questions we should ask. We should ask of the Obama administration, why did you give guns to so many people? Like you had this whole like anti-gun rhetoric and then you've got Fast and Furious over here. Like these are problems, right? Tell me, tell me, Mr. Reagan, why are you giving the Iranians weapons via this like insane looped around thing? Right. These are these are things that either and Reagan said he didn't know how that happened. Right. He pushed all that to Oliver North. That's a problem in the administration. There's so many problems. Well, so, yeah, like I think that bothered me the most is, again, they asked him about to denounce the white supremacists. And he's like, I denounce Antifa and the people on the left that are burning on cities that are run by Democrats. You know what they're doing? And then the, the interviewer, the town hall host is like, OK, well, while we're denouncing, let me ask you about QAnon. And he basically she's like, can you disavow QAnon? And he's like, in its entirety. And she's like, or sorry, the announcer says, can you disavow QAnon in its entirety? I know nothing about QAnon. I just told you. I know very little. You tell me, but what you tell me doesn't necessarily make it fact. Um, basically, he's actively refusing to disavow, disavow QAnon people. And we know that QAnon is a huge part of the American fabric right now. And again, I don't, I do not necessarily disagree that he doesn't know about QAnon. I don't think that he's completely lying. I think that he doesn't have a full picture. But you know who does? The FBI, because that's their job. He said that they're the white supremacists are the, the threat to the country right now. Right. And so if we've got a group who is inside this intelligence agency who knows these things, the president should be being briefed on these and not retweeting them. 
So here's the thing, though. You're, you're assuming that he, I think, that, that, you, that he hasn't been briefed. I completely believe he has not been briefed. Okay, that's still making him a because we don't know that. But Trump has not exactly shown his ability to hear from other people or like learn information and then take it and take it in and use it well. So I would also not be surprised if he has been briefed. This is again, this is all speculation kind of from, from, from on both sides, but that the man has been briefed and didn't care enough, didn't take it seriously enough, didn't whatever enough for it to either stick or he just doesn't care. I think that's a possibility, but you Given what we know about his briefings and how elementary they've become and the frustration he has. Because he doesn't listen to them, maybe? Right. And the frustration he has that he even has to get them. That That is like, he didn't say, he said you can in- inject something like bleach to disinfect the blood or something along those lines. Like he, he did not say, he did not say put bleach in you, right? He didn't say those words. Right. But at what level are you listening and paying attention that you're ready to... It's like it's like reading a book on Audible at three times speed and picking up some of the words and then trying to make a coherent argument off of what you listen to. And I just find that problematic. I mean, I'm going to agree. I was going to disagree and say I can listen at three times speed and pick up what they're saying. But then I remember that I'm just weird in that respect. Well, even if you do, even if you do pick up what you're, what they're saying, Caleb, which is possible. If you're going to cite it in a paper or use it as an argument, you're going to slow down. You're going to find it. You're going to read it so that you can have a detailed understanding of what they're saying so that when you make your argument, you're making a very solid argument, not just based on your three times listen, but based on another pass on it. Sure. I mean, I listen to a lot of stuff and form opinions, but it's not this. It's not. I don't go further than that. I don't press on things that I've listened to at two times speed. I, I think I think, though, that that will ultimately, whether it's because he hasn't been briefed, whether it's because he hasn't taken in the briefs or hasn't remembered them or those things, it was not a good showing for him to be able to say, I know very little about this. I know very little about that. I, I would be interested to know, and I've had people, people somebody ask if he chose the moderator <laughs> um, because she really didn't let him just say, I don't know that. Like, because the, the feedback that I've seen then from others is like, well, she was bullying him, which kind of made me chuckle because I was like, he he doesn't respond to like normal conversation. So how else can you get answers out of him but by by pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing, um, which isn't bullying. I, I don't think it was a good even I, I mean I'm I'm, not, I'm certainly not objective when it comes to President Trump, but try even trying to be objective, it didn't it wasn't a good look that he said I don't know to how many things or didn't have answers to healthcare and and to say like oh i'm just retweeting things it doesn't mean that i agree with them oh that was the worst you don't get to just retweet no you're not you're not a business owner anymore you are the president like you don't get to just retweet things this is a thing that i think is probably the biggest reason that a lot of people won't vote for him he does not understand the magnitude of the office of the presidency Right. You don't get to just retweet things. You don't get to tweet. I'm not going to negotiate anymore and then say, well, that's how I negotiate. You can say that privately, but you cannot make a public statement like that. Right. Like, that's not how we do these things. That one of the things that people kept saying about Trump when even in the primaries back in 2016 was they liked him because he wasn't a politician and he was going to say what he wanted or whatever. And then the point that I made to Nate was like, hold on, the man is a has been a business mogul. And I'm sorry, that's still politics. He might not have been an off in office, a political 
person, he might not be a lifetime politician in office, but the way that those upper echelon of, of business deals and stuff works is highly, highly political. It's a misunderstanding of political, I think. Right. It is. But it, it just was something that kind of came out of our conversation yesterday that I just felt was, was relevant to, especially as we're nearing the election again, and people are like, he's not a lifetime politician. No, he is. He's just not in office. So I had one more thought before we move on from Trump. I've not watched either of them, nor have I read the entire transcripts. But I did look at some highlights. Um, and one thing that I found interesting is that Donald Trump has more or less confirmed what the New York Times released as his tax returns. He was asked about those directly and he didn't say they were false. He said that they were gotten illegally, which is a pretty direct indication that they are legit and that all of the numbers are correct. He also, well, he said in the numbers that uh, if you owe 420 million and you're un as under leveraged as he is, then it's not a big deal. And then he further said that the $750 he paid was a filing fee in taxes. It's in the transcript. I know that that's hard to believe, but that's what he said. Yeah, he did not. He did not negate what they said at all. He simply said that they had obtained them illegally, which I don't know if that's possible. Uh, that's like that's like people saying, yeah, I don't have to tell you about my health because of HIPAA. It's like, well, that's not New York Times probably didn't obtain them illegally, but whoever gave them to them probably did. Right. Whether it was the people preparing them to give them to the DA, whether it was his company that does his taxes, wherever it came from, they did the illegal part, not the New York Times then publishing it. That's not illegal to publish what is given to you as a leak. Yep. So uh, Joe Biden was also in a town hall. I don't know if you're aware of that. So can I, I just want to ask the question, how would you feel about a Mr. Rogers for president? Oh my gosh, man. That was the craziest thing when she, when she said that, because she's like the, the Trump campaign. Like if you just didn't know, you'd been like, wow, that's a, that's a huge compliment. But then you're like, oh, this is the Trump campaign. Oh, this person thinks that's an insult. Like, do you know who's voting? Like, I was raised with Mr. Rogers. I watched Daniel's Tigers, Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood with my kid. Like, I love King Friday. I adore the fish, right? Like, I loved watching the TV that's a picture frame. I'm all about that Mr. Rogers life. I love the sweaters. Like, that was the dumbest thing I've ever seen anyone put. But it's so very masculine American yep. that it does not confuse me at all. Because a man who is humble and kind and generous and sweet and caring and willing to teach children, that's not a man. And that's literally what we were told last night by the Trump campaign, somebody or the other. Yeah. Okay. So a full disclosure. I've never actually watched a full episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Okay. We're done here. I don't know that you can be on the podcast again until you've done that. You have to watch one this week. How have you never seen Mr. Rogers? I don't know. Have you at least like watched the movie about Mr. Rogers? Tell us more about your childhood. I watched Daniel Tiger. <sighs> okay. You need to watch the Mr. Rogers movie that came out last year. You don't have to watch actual Mr. Rogers, but you need to watch that one. Yeah. I love Tom Hanks. That's not hard. Listen, I know how crayons are made. Not because of the stupid, you know, the Discovery Channel, how it's made show that only exists because of Mr. Rogers. Yes. That's I learned how crayons are made. I learned how construction paper is made. I don't know what was wrong with my childhood that I never watched Mr. Rogers. I mean, I've got a list going from things you've told me, so. <laughs> 
Are there any other PBS shows that you missed? Like, did you watch Sesame Street? Not really, honestly. Like, PBS... Okay, she's on basically on American. Okay, as a younger kid, I liked Rugrats. Oh, you, you were a rich kid. She had cable. <laughs> Us broke kids had to watch PBS and Recess and all those things. So anyway, back to Mr. Rogers and this um, Mercedes uh, schlap. So she then, she then tweeted later and said, as usual, the left has taken my words out of context. The ABC town hall is filled with softball questions by the moderator. It was like they were sharing peace and cookies. Uh, we all want peace, but at least ABC should not include a former Obama speechwriter as an undecided voter, which apparently may be one of the people who asked Biden a question. I, I mean, do you guys think that the questions to Biden were more softball questions? Yeah, they were policy questions. Which should have... I mean, that's what you should have to ask, right? Here's the thing. The types of questions that are softball questions for any normal politician are what Trump has trouble with, right? Can you denounce white supremacy? That is a softball question. Sure, just name a group. That is a softball question if ever there was one. But that's the thing that Trump has issues with. He got asked it last night and all he had to say, right, all he had to say was, yes, I denounce white supremacy. Next question. That's it. That's all he had to do. He pressed and said, I also disavow this. And by doing that, she then responded. So he, again, it goes back to that humility piece. He did not have the humility to just answer a question and move on. So the fact that Joe Biden will just answer the question that's asked, that makes the question softball questions. And at the end of almost every single one of Joe Biden's responses, he said, I hope I answered your question. And afterwards, he was there for 30 minutes. ABC had him on. He wasn't mic'd. You could just see that he was still there talking to people. Yeah. They had their audio over it. He wasn't getting any, like, the sound bites weren't there, but he was there talking to people still. And I don't know what happened with President Trump, so I will not assume anything. But there's a difference in the way the candidates interact with people. And so last night, a, a young man, Cedric Humphrey, asked a question about black voters uh, under the age of 30. And he said, my question for you then is, besides you ain't black, what do you have to say to young black voters who see voting for you as further participation in a system that continually fails to not protect them? And Biden attempted to answer it. But I don't know. I felt like his answer was was problematic. So he said, he says, in fact, if, for example, if you in fact and I were the same age, we split our differences and we were the same age. We went to the same builder to buy us each the same home. But my home was in a white neighborhood on one side of the highway. And yours is in a black neighborhood, exact same home. You will start off being valued 29% less than my home. Yet your insurance for that home will be higher. You'll be taxed more for it. These are all true statements. But the way he said it to a young black man, I don't know if if it was the best. And he, he did not he did not seem uh, convinced of the answer. Right. Because it wasn't a great answer. Biden said a whole bunch of true things. But then the question is, how do we... It's not just, is there a problem? which I do think that Biden's doing a good job of acknowledging. The question is, how do we fix that? Do we do it with laws? Do we do it with uh, some sort of aid? And he didn't answer that question. Um, and he talked about wealth and accumulating wealth and how that's difficult for black America, which again is all true. Right. I, I just don't know the way. Uh, it was weird. It was weird. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Again, I didn't watch it or read it, but that's, I don't think that there's an answer that Joe Biden could give. 
to that question. What are you going to do about it? Well, there's not one thing that I can do about it that's not going to alienate a large portion of what he wants. I think, though, I think you can answer that question, though. Even if there was some action that he wanted to take. But see, what do you have to say to young black voters who see voting for you as further participation in a system that continually fails to not protect them? The answer to that question is not telling me about the problem. It's saying, you know what, Cedric, you're right. And the, the problem is our country has failed. And I will have a coalition of young black leaders at the White House to address the problems that you're talking about. These is how he, he shifted to the problem and set it to a solution. Okay, I think probably he should have listed what the problem is because there is a large portion of people that don't even recognize that that's a thing, right? A large portion of people that support him that don't. So he needs to say that. I agree, but he's talking to a black voter. And so I don't know if he needs to say that. But he's not just talking to a black voter. He's talking to everybody watching the debate. So he needs to say, this is the problem. There is a constant devaluation of the value of black people, right? Like all of these things, all of their property and whatnot. And we recognize that and we'll put together this thing. So he needs to part the part that you said, Matt, but he needs to put that on top of the answer he gave. And hopefully he can do that better, and, and someone will point that out to him. He also had a question about the 1994 crime bill, which was an interesting response. He did say that he would he would want to decriminalize marijuana, which I don't, is it just a federal crime or is that also a state crime? It depends on the state. Right. So decriminalizing federally does not decriminalize it, period. And that's, we'd have to work on some of those things. Right. Well, there's not a way to decriminalize it completely. Like states can still do what states want, where, you know, it's a federalist system. And he did, he did say that it was a mistake to support the 1994 crime bill. But he said the mistake came in terms of what states did locally, which I, I don't know the answer to that question as much. I do, I do agree with Vice President Biden that what we need to do is increase funding for uh, our police. Uh, but at the same time, let let them actually police and not be social workers. Let them police and not go check on homeless statues. Like there's some things that the funding that is going to police to do certain things needs to not go to them and go to somebody else to do those things. So the funding that goes to the police to process rape kits needs to go to private labs to process rape kits. It, aspects like that, yes, defund the police because the police shouldn't be doing this job. They shouldn't be paying lab technicians. We should be contracting that work out. So like in those ways, like absolutely defund the police because like police shouldn't be doing these things. An officer shouldn't be working 60 hours a week to support a family, right? You put you put that much work on somebody. It's not safe. You're at a heightened place of tension in stops and it like you're already missing people. You're at the end of an eight hour day or 12 hour day. That's when mistakes happen. Mistakes don't happen at the beginning of a shift usually, right? They happen toward the end when you're stressed and because you've been working so much and you haven't had vacation. I think that we have a problem with policing in this nation, but I don't think that the problem with policing simply is the police. It's what, what we as a society have expected them to do and not pay them. It's the same thing with teachers, right? We need to pay teachers more. Why? Not because their job is like incredibly hard. No offense to teachers, but it's not the hardest job in the world. It's difficult, but there are harder things to do, right? But we pay them because we value them. When we pay them so little, we're saying we don't actually value you. When we pay cops $40,000 a year, when that's not enough to make money, even 50, we're saying we don't actually value you. You are a commodity that we can dis dispose of. And that is sending the wrong message to cops who then feel like they have to bind together and 
Right. Like, of course, because everyone else is treating you as disposable. Like, we need to fix the way we treat people, and maybe that'll fix everything else. And to circle back to my previous dislike of a certain administration, there seems to be a devaluing of people in the current administration. And some people might disagree with that. But when you call people monster, when you call people uh, lion, sneaky, uh, when you put pejoratives in front of their names, you're not valuing them as people. You're actually devaluing them. Part of how we have to fix the problem is we have to have funding for the government. We can't keep spending money we don't have to do these things. So at the same time that we need to do these things, we need to raise taxes. We need to do these other things because the government can't continue to fund police and not raise revenue from the population. That's not how it works. So if we want to actually support police, if we want to actually support military, the only way to do that sustainably is to raise taxes, which is a thing that nobody seems to be willing to actually say, yes, your taxes are going to go up. Yes, overall GDP will shrink as a result of that. But that's worth it because then we can actually function as a uh, country that won't fall into disrepair as our debt is soon to be greater than our national GDP. But nobody's actually going to talk about that because it's unpopular. Yeah. Yep. On a note with Biden, we just watched a little bit of it. Like he was asked, you know, if you don't win the presidency, like what's your what's what's your response? What's your plan? Or how are, how are you going to still impact like change or work for for change? And and his answer was to go teach at the University of I can't remember what Delaware and continue to try to work and educate in that way, which I like that he answered also where he said, I hope if I don't win the presidency, it's because I just wasn't a good candidate, not because we're as polarized or as like divided and stuff as this administration has made us think we are. And that might have been a little bit of an optimistic like thing, but I, but I still appreciated his, I mean, his kind of a little bit of self-deprecation, but also just saying like, I hope this is, this is why. And the humility to say, I'm going to continue to work in this in my own way that I can, um, because it would be really easy for him to say, well, I'm going to retire and like go sit on my butt, you know, and he's what, 78? Like the man could very easily just decide, I mean, could retire and be done. And that's, and nobody, nobody would begrudge him of that either. I don't think so. I, I did appreciate that answer of his. It just was kind of a breath of fresh air versus someone who says that he won't agree to a peaceful transfer of power. That just is a stark difference between the two, and I appreciated it. He did. He did say that he would. Uh, he would acquiesce to a, a peaceful transfer of power last night. It wasn't like it wasn't that clean because he still was talking about ballot manipulation and all this other stuff. But he, in a way, did say. That he would, just like he denounced white supremacy, he said that he would accept the uh, peaceful transfer of power. Civil war could literally be averted based on that. And I wish that were hyperbolic. I think it is a little hyperbolic, but I understand what you're saying. We should all live in a little bit of hyperbole. I don't think so. It might be a very little civil war, but even if it's just a small militia that thinks that they're fighting for Trump, if it's the military involved, it's a civil war. That's how those things work. It was a little civil war. Just a little civil war. Just a little one. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Barely Saved Podcast. Make sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app. You can find more episodes, links, and show notes at barelysavedpodcast.com. Bye. Bye. Bye, everyone.